Last week we looked at uh, the incredible encounter Moses has with God, uh, the burning bush instant that it's well known for, of course. And what we know of this moment is that, according to, to many scholars, Moses ha- was 40 years in Egypt and has been a shepherd for 40 years beyond that when he has this encounter with God in the, in the wilderness. We see, and we touched on last week, that he's drawn to the fire. He's drawn to this flame. And what we saw as well when we looked last week was that this fire is measured, it's purposeful, it's controlled, it doesn't consume. And he's drawn to it out of curiosity. And in this moment, he receives an invitation, an invitation to become a willing partner with God. What we also see from this, of course, is this initial reluctance Moses has. A number of reasons why he might have been reluctant. We touched on it to a point last week, but more so we can unpack it, this sense of him being mature in age. Perhaps even being nervous to return to the place of a past challenge. Maybe you can relate to both of those dynamics. The third point also that he felt unqualified. Again, maybe that, that's something that resonates with you in your own life and circumstance. And then he says the following things. He says to God, who, who am I? Who am I? There's that unqualified dynamic, that perhaps nervousness that comes with him being the age that he is. Who am I that I could possibly do this and then he starts to run through other concerns like what if Pharaoh says no what if Pharaoh says no or what if the people of Israel won't listen it, it's like in his mind he goes through every possible negative eventuality and and what I think is incredible in this is what does God do in response to every concern that Moses raises What we see is that God constantly reassures. He just constantly offers reassurance. And I love that. We mentioned the phrase last week that God lets Moses know that he has the full weight of heaven behind him should he step out into this task. So we see constant reassurance until God's patience is exhausted. Important to note that even though God loves Moses, his patience gets exhausted. Even with those he loves, his patience can be tried to the point of breaking. When Moses still refused to go, even after all that constant reassurance, even after the whole weight of heaven being put behind the assurance, we see the word tells us that God's anger burned against Moses. And in this, I think it's actually a miracle that Moses wasn't consumed. Therein, again, is the restraint of God. 
mental note for us when we think about all of that is let's let's never push God that far. When we think about what God is asking of us today, whether personally or, or corporately, let's remember never to push God that far. Let's lay down our excuses and, and step out with the full weight of heaven behind us. What is the solution that God offers to Moses? Well, the solution that God offers to Moses, again showing God's grace, his mercy, his restraint, is, is that Aaron will compensate for Moses's uh, supposed perceived shortfalls. We see here God is willing to compromise and I think that's incredible for us to to just pause and reflect upon that God is willing to compromise in his dialogue but he's not willing to compromise in relation to his will. He will compromise to get his will achieved but never in, in contradiction to his will. Let's look again at Genesis chapter 4 verse 21 just to Just to close off that section, the Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put within your power, but I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. It's important for us to remember that God sees the end from the beginning, so God's not making a statement here glibly, but he knows how things are going to play out and so when it says that God does, uh, God will harden Pharaoh's heart, we have to emphasise that God does harden Pharaoh's heart. But what is important for us to emphasise in that is that God only does so after Pharaoh has fully established and laid out his own position. God hardens his heart when he reveals his position. So let's read chapter 5 together, verses 1 to 8. And let's just see where this takes us. Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. They answered, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God or else he may strike us with plague or sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, Why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your labour. Pharaoh also said, Look, the people of the land are so numerous and you would stop them from their labour. That day, Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people, as well as the foremen, don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks, as before. They must go and gather straw from themselves, but require the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they are slackers. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. This portion contains possibly the most oft-asked question in history. It's found in chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh responded, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And actually, whilst 
rightly, this might be seen as an offensive question. It's also, in some regards, a fair question when it's asked in the appropriate context. You see, for Pharaoh, in part, it's a valid question because, in theory, according to uh, rabbinic uh, supposition, shall we say, or or, uh, historical understanding, the Pharaoh of this moment, of this day, did not know the God of the Hebrews. And, And so... The question's valid. Who is this Lord that I should obey him? It's a valid question in some regards. And just like many people today in our own communities, in our own culture, our own nation, we don't have to go to the remotest forests of the world now to to get to this reality of not knowing the God of the Hebrews. We just have to go go down the street even. Going to the local primary school, local high school, people have no concept of the God of, of heaven. Now, ultimately, as we see in Romans chapter 1, people are without excuse. Romans 1 verse 18 to 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Ultimately, nobody has an excuse, but what we have to remember And this is where we can be, to a degree, we can be gracious. Pharaoh, raised in a culture and environment where creation and the reality in front of him has been attributed to the power of other gods. So, can we be gracious in this initial moment? I think we can, to a point. But but as, as the story unfolds, we'll see that actually... Any leg Pharaoh had left to stand on is no longer uh, valid. Question we can ask of this idea of, of other gods and, and the worship of other gods. And when you look at Egypt, the, the multiplicity of gods, you ask, where did that come from? I think Deuteronomy 32 verses 8 and 9 gives us int- interesting, incredible Uh, valuable insight into that very question. Where did this idea come from? And uh, what I would say is a lot of our contemporary, uh, in fact, almost all of our translations that we use will choose to translate Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 and 9 a certain way. Let me read what I have in my Bibles. I've got the CSB here and I've got the NASB here. And it says in 32 verses, uh, let me see, 8 and 9, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of mankind, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of, and it says in this text, the sons of Israel. Verse 9 though, it says, For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. Now, your Bible might have a little note here. Mine here has a capital A, which takes me to a footnote, 
which gives me alternative readings. So he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of thee. One option is the sons of Israel. The other option here is the sons of God. Or, in the Septuagint, the angels of God. And the ESV, I believe, is the only uh, English translation that opts to go for the sons of God, angels of God. Supernatural beings rather than the sons of Israel, natural people. And I, and I think it, there's a good argument to say that actually, in the context, it'd be more accurate to say uh, the angels of God, the, the sons of God, the Genesis 6 dynamic that's going on here, the rebellious angels of, of God. And that would then read that God, he, set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the angels of God. That is, in theory, the fallen angels of God. For the Lord's portion is his people. So God takes one portion out of the people and his portion is Jacob. But the rest of the people are allotted to the, the fallen angels on earth. Now there's a lot of debate on why that might be the case. Uh, we don't have time to go into that today. Perhaps we could revisit that in the future. But let me just unpack why that might be important. Where did the other gods come from? Egypt, I would propose, was one of many nations handed over to the sons of God. Remember that phrase, sons of God, from Genesis chapter 6? There are a few theories as to what it might mean. Personally, I believe that that is a, an angelic group. It's not a group of natural people. It's an angelic group. We've read in Job chapter 1, verse 6, about the angels gathering uh, before the throne of God to dialogue and discuss. I would propose one of the reasons they're gathering and dialoguing is because they have been allotted people, uh, people groups, nations on the earth, and they're ultimately accountable to God uh, for that. So what we find is that these nations are handed over to the false gods. And now actually, in reality, they are supernatural entities operating behind these false gods. And what we see, if we go back to Genesis chapter 11, is that God separated the nations out at the destruction of the Tower of Babel, of, of Babel. So what happened at that moment, we could propose from Deuteronomy 32, is that when God separated the nations out, uh, they were all allotted to be, uh, to be handed over to the angels of God. And God kept back his inheritance, that was Jacob. What we have here, therefore, is a number of nations that were already, as people, living in rejection to God. That's what the Tower of Babel was. And so God hands them over to that rejection. And Egypt is, is created and birthed out of that rejection to God. And under the influence and in submission to false gods, you'd get false worship. So Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord that I should obey? It's a valid question in the sense that he does not know the God of the Hebrews. And the gods that he knows are ultimately supernatural in their existence, but not the one true God. So who is the Lord that I should obey? And his response 
Uh, beyond that is, I don't know the Lord. They were initially, I would say, fair, out of ignorance. But note what comes next. His subsequent comment reveals his heart condition. He shifts from ignorance to deliberate rejection. Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord and besides, I will not let Israel go. And besides, to paraphrase perhaps the voice of Pharaoh's heart condition, I don't know the Lord. And if honouring that Lord would force me to sacrifice what suits me, then I don't want to know that Lord. Is that maybe a, a, a voice that we might hear in our communities today? I don't know the Lord and do you know if honouring that Lord would force me to have to sacrifice what suits me, then I don't want to know that Lord. Pharaoh, in this moment, hardens his heart against the Lord because of the consequence of bowing the knee to that Lord. And I would propose this isn't just the condition of Pharaoh's heart, it's the condition of a multitude uh, in our society today. I love what John Chrysostom says of this portion of scripture. He says, let us then become lowly that we may become high. For most utterly does arrogance abase. Pharaoh said, I know not the Lord. And he became inferior to flies and frogs and locusts. We're going to come to that, of course, next week. Whereas when we look at Abraham, uh, John Chrysostom notes that his response to God was, I am dust and ashes. And of course, what we see is that uh, Abraham and all others that bow the knee to God will prevail. Uh, Chrysostom says that Abraham prevailed over countless barbarians. <laughs> That's a wonderful little picture for us. Pharaoh perceived himself as, as God and so why would he listen to another? We might excuse him of this because of his culture that had elevated him to such a level. But when we realise that he's actually ultimately without excuse, then ultimately he takes his place alongside every other man and woman born after Adam and Eve. Genesis 3 verse 5. Again, we said that, like last week, everything is connected. We go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. The serpent, that is Satan, talking to Eve says, In fact, God knows that when you eat it, that is the fruit that they, of the tree that they were not to eat, when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be like God. Pharaoh is living out that's that declaration of the serpent in the garden and he is to himself and his culture has elevated him to be a god. He's bought into the lie that Satan had declared. And there's two significant questions that I think are raised from this whole incident with Pharaoh and, and Moses. Why do people like Pharaoh and everyone else since? Why do they not know? Why do they not know the God of the Hebrews? And, and secondly, why do they not want to know the God of the Hebrews? Let's look at Romans chapter 10 together. Verses 14 and 15. To answer the question, 
Why do people like Pharaoh and like our neighbours, our work colleagues, why do they not know about the God of the Hebrews? Verse 14 and 15 of Romans chapter, chapter 10. How then are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That's the NASB's rendition of that. How do they not know? Well, if they haven't heard, and if the preacher hasn't gone out, if the evangelist hasn't spoken, and remember, we're all preachers, we're all evangelists in our own way. Second question, why do people not want to know? Let's look at the first part of the next verse. So the, the reminder, if they haven't believed because they haven't heard and because the preacher hasn't been sent out, verse 16, the first part, however, they did not all heed the good news. So they may never have heard, but the question is when they do hear, how do they respond? Do they want to know? In a sense, we could say Moses becomes the feet <laughs> bringing the good news. The good news in a sense that there is a God that you, Pharaoh, haven't heard about. And the good news in that you're about to see just how superior he is to the supernatural and the manufactured gods you have been honouring and serving. Since the start of the year, we've been emphasising this simple point that God invites people into willing partnership. And in a sense, what we see with what's happening and unfolding with Pharaoh is there's an invitation happening here. Now, it is an invitation uh, not not in the same way that he's inviting to engage with Moses or inviting to engage with Abraham, but an invitation for Pharaoh to see the greater picture. And along with that invitation is the demonstration, the demonstration of God's power, the, the laying out of the evidence that God is superior to all that Pharaoh has known. We see within that Pharaoh's hardening of his own heart and then what we see is God fortifying as I think it is Chip Heidsick uh, of Calvary Chapel Church that, that uses that term, fortifying Pharaoh's heart once he has hardened it himself. What we see is Moses encourages Pharaoh to listen. He extends the invitation to acknowledge the God of heaven and in the acknowledgement of God, of the God of heaven, to let that God rule and reign in his heart. But Pharaoh's heart is too consumed with his own way. Ultimately, there is no room for another and especially no room for there to be a dominant other. So God must do what needs to be done. He must do what needs to be done in order to achieve what must be achieved. God does what needs to be done in order to achieve what must be achieved. What we see in Genesis, uh, sorry, in Exodus chapter 6, uh, verse 1. Exodus chapter 6, verse 1, we see the resolve of God to do what must be done. 
It says in this chapter, then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let you go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. That was the NASB. Let me just turn, uh, as I'm reading that, just thinking, let's hear the CSB's rendition of this, because there's a phrase in here that's really important for us to hear. It's a phrase that a lot of translations will have. NASB uses under compulsion. But here we have the CSB. But the Lord replied to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, because of a strong hand he will let them go, and because of a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. That phrase, strong hand, is actually, uh, many have argued, was actually uh, a phrase that the Pharaohs themselves would use when they were seeking to dominate other peoples, they would they would declare their strong hand, the strong arm of Pharaoh. Well, God is, in a sense, using that phrase back at them. So that was 6 verse 1. Let's go to Exodus 7 verse 17 and just hear again the resolve of God to do what must be done. This is, uh, this is Moses speaking. This is what the Lord says. Here is how you will know that I am Lord. Watch, I'm about to strike the water in the Nile with the staff in my hand and it will turn to blood. That phrase there, this is how you will know that I am the Lord. So here's Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I do not know him. Well, God is going to reveal himself in power, in demonstrations of power. Interesting that Moses, back in the earlier chapters and last week's focus, said, who am I? And God responded with encouragement and assurance. Here we have Pharaoh saying, not who am I, but who is God? And God responds with a demonstration of power. And it's purposed to humble, to humble and to display his greatness. Question, why is this happening? Well, we've touched on this over the past number of weeks. God lets these things happen. He even orchestrates things to reveal the sin of the nations. We also said to develop faith in the faithful and also to demonstrate his power to the heavens and the earth. What we see is, of course, God's actions in this will humble the earth and our purpose, of course, to humble the heavens, to humble the earth, because every knee and heart that uh, have willingly bowed to something else and someone else will ultimately bow to God. The humbling of people's hearts before the throne of heaven and then humbling the heavens because the sons of God, that is the, the fallen angels, the supernatural beings along with Lucifer, they will be humbled for their rebellion as well. So God in all of this, and we're going to see this next week when we look at the gods of Egypt and the plagues of Egypt, that God is not just humbling the people, but he's also humbling the entities, uh, the supernatural entities of heaven as well. I've touched on this before. I have sympathy for Pharaoh to the degree that I know that I too have asked the question, who is the Lord that I should do what he asks? I think if we're being honest, in our, even in our Christian walk, even in our, our daily walk, we would ask that question at times. Maybe not intentionally, maybe not in so many words, but in our attitude and in our, our lifestyle. 
Every time I choose to elevate my opinion above God's opinion, I'm ultimately saying, who is the Lord that I should do what he asks? Now, I'm pretty confident that the uh, God of heaven wanted to be a father to Pharaoh. I'm confident of that. And of course, we know that Pharaoh refused. How can I be confident of that? Well, 2 Peter 3 tells us. What does it tell us? It tells us that uh, it's God's desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that means that all means all. So that means that Pharaoh, Pharaoh is part of that all. God would have desired that Pharaoh would, would, uh, would repent and, and return, would submit and would worship, that God could be a father to Pharaoh. We know that he didn't do that, of course. He didn't relent in his, in his uh, worship, essentially of himself. What is the difference between us and Pharaoh? Well, I would propose the difference simply is the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our response to that. We know the word that it's only by grace we have been saved. And now saved, our Father asks much of us. He asks much of us in response. But everything that he asks of us is purposed to bring about good and holy fruit that can change the world. And it comes through worship and honour and acknowledgement of the God of heaven. Where is the greatest battle for today? We're looking at the news and we're seeing especially what's been going on in Afghanistan and Kabul and you could be uh, perhaps forgiven for saying well the greatest battle for today would be found in a location on the earth and it is on a location in the earth, many locations. I would propose it's in the hearts and minds of every single person. That's where the greatest battle for today is. As people wrestle with that question, who is the Lord that I should obey? Who is the Lord that I should do what he asks? And when we ask that question, the simple answer is found in Psalm 24. If you have a chance to read Psalm 24, that lays out who is the Lord. And then the answer is the Lord God Almighty, strong in battle. Worth reading that psalm. Uh, just to close our, our time together, as we look at uh, Moses and his faults and failings, as we look at Pharaoh and his faults and failings, I'm so encouraged to look to Jesus. Because what we see in Jesus is everything that we do not see in history. We don't see it in Moses to the, to the fullest degree. We don't see it in Pharaoh at all. What is that that we see? We go to the Garden of Gethsemane and we hear these words afresh. Jesus, in anguish, knowing that he has to lay down his life, he says, not my will be done, but yours. So let's, let's embrace those words again. Let's learn from Moses. Let's learn from Pharaoh. Who is the Lord? The Lord is the God of heaven. He's our Father. And he has incredible plans.
plans for us. Let's embrace them in Jesus' name. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for the chance to once again revisit this portion of your word, a portion of your word that we've read countless times, but just to be reminded afresh of the importance of, of placing you in your rightful place. And also the importance of mission, of conveying to other people who you are. Yes, they might choose to walk away from who you are, but but we do our bit, God. We proclaim who you are and let your spirit work in that moment, in the hearts and minds of people around us, so that unlike Pharaoh, their hearts would submit to the loving God of heaven. Thank you for your word, God, and for the transformative power of it. In Jesus' name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Thank you.